Welcome to Lancelot's Roundtable. On Lancelot's Roundtable podcast, I gather at the table with special guests and listen to their unique stories and learn about their lives. In having these long-form conversations, I hope to grow in my perspectives and understanding. So get ready to listen in. As you listen to this and other episodes, perhaps your life will be enriched in a meaningful way. With one of our SIV applicants, when he's telling us, the Taliban are in my neighborhood. They're knocking on doors. They're knocking on my door. He went to the roof. We, Christy and I, prayed that, you know, God would make him invisible, that they would not be able to enter his home and slaughter him and his wife and two children because that's what they would do. You just realized you have no more coffee. Correct. Well, it was tea. <laughs> oh, I like okay. looked into my mug and like, yep, it's pure disappointment done. on his face. We're done. Pure disappointment. <laughs> it's true. You know, we're not going to... Doing what I'm doing, I'm not going to stop crime. Mm-hmm. Like people are always, it's just going to happen. People are going to be evil. People are going to do evil things. Um, but if someone doesn't do something, then it's just going to be that much worse. All right, everybody, Lancelot's Roundtable is back. We're kicking off season three. I'm in a bit of a studio now, which is really exciting. So uh, thanks for stopping what you were doing and deciding to listen to this episode. Before we get into today's episode, please consider supporting our work. We want to continue to bring you the best episodes we can. Here's how you can support. First, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps people find us. Please share this podcast with your friends and family. Come follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And finally, consider making a $5 donation by going to our Instagram page and clicking the link in the bio. Thank you so much for all the support. And uh, finally, this episode is brought to you by Orphan World Relief. Since its founding in 2008, Orphan World Relief has built strong partnerships with churches, businesses, and other nonprofit organizations and people just like you to help children in crisis, including those living as orphans and refugees, kids entering the foster care system for the first time, older children aging out of the foster care system, and families as they deal with the stress and trauma of foster care and adoption. Want to know more? Head over to orphanworldrelief.org to see how you can help by volunteering and or donating. Orphan World Relief. Hope changes everything. All right, so let's go ahead and get into this episode. When I was in my super early teens, I can remember realizing that I didn't know how to handle myself. Compounding this realization was the understanding the majority of other humans were larger than I was. When most humans around you are larger, it can feel unnerving. It should feel unnerving. I also remember watching several movies and TV shows where a single individual was able to handle themselves against multiple assailants using some form of martial art. Thus, I became interested in martial arts. My older brother, probably for different reasons, also became interested in martial arts. One thing led to another, and we eventually found a small local karate class, and we started attending classes there. We trained in a classical style of karate called Shorin-Ru. I absolutely fell in love with the art. Loved going to class and training. I did it for several years. I learned incredibly valuable lessons training over the years. I learned how to face challenges, physical, mental, and emotional. 
I learned the value to push through discomfort. I learned to overcome myself. One of the years, I was incredibly sick. That's a story for another time. And I didn't train for almost a whole year. Eventually, I was well enough to return and train again. And I trained hard with a renewed determination. Eventually, I earned my black belt, still one of my proudest moments. After that, I really wanted to teach it, so it became my goal to become a sensei. In time, I did become a sensei and had the privilege of teaching some amazing people for a few years. I will make the following statement with 100% confidence. The most important thing in training in any martial art is going to be your teacher. I was very blessed and lucky to have a tremendously skilled and gifted sensei in training in karate that took me through my journey from white belt to sensei and beyond. And today I am thrilled to welcome him to the podcast for what I expect will be an amazing conversation at the roundtable. John, welcome to the roundtable. Thank you. It's my honor. Pleasure. So you're still here after the five minutes of long introduction. <laughs> yeah, after that, I was going to leave. But I thought, you know, he stuck around. <laughs> That's awesome. So, John, let's just get started by talking about how you even start. How, you, how did you get started in karate? Actually, I had the same issue, issues that you did. I was, I was the smallest guy of my age. Um, I was about 10 years old when I started. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I lived in a really rough area. So, uh, basically I got beat up multiple times by a local street gang mm-hmm. and that was about 1972. I was 10 years old. Yeah. Uh, my dad had a Marine buddy, Jerry Clater. Mm-hmm. He took me to his class and said, you know, we normally don't take kids because in those times they didn't. They didn't really like teaching kids that were less than 15 years old. Right. And it, well, either beat him tough or he'll quit. <laughs> yeah. I didn't quit. I had a lot of drive because I had to be able to defend myself, and mostly in school, obvious reasons. Not allowed weapons, but they were all bigger than me. Yeah. But that that was my initial start. Was with Jerry Clater and a, a guy back in those days was known as Ron Burgess. Mm-hmm. But he did a phenomenal job in Shotokan, and, and that's where I started with Shotokan. Uh, he, Ron Burgess, uh, went to Japan and, uh, how to put that? He handed him their butt and he came back a champion. Mm-hmm. Um, so they renamed him Nakia Yamashita. So you would have known him as Master Yamashita. Yes. That, that was that old boy. He was a dangerous old dude. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that that was my start. So you were you were ten years old. They didn't accept people that young back then. So what was that like being in a class with everybody's bigger than you and older than you? Scary. <laughs> <laughs> Very scary. No but doubt. We also didn't have motivators like we do today in that particular class. I mean, they, they, the belt systems were around, of course, but um, we didn't have 10 belts. We had four. Yep. And and still today, if you go to a karate tournament, it'll say the different divisions, white, green, brown, black. Those are the only belts that we really had were white, white green, brown, black. Yeah. We, we did all the tests, and they patted you on the back and said, good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and on. Just not necessarily with a new belt. No. So you didn't have that kind of motivator. 
eventually over, you know, over a few years of, of training and working out with, with friends and all that, uh, I went in the army and when I came back, I couldn't find Yamashita. Mm-hmm. I could and when I first came back to Ohio after the army, um, so I got, I found the ASKA, which is the American Show and Karate Academy. And that's where I met Sensei Barth. Um, uh, he was quite a, and still is quite a, uh, host of knowledge and, and discipline for me. So 1984, very beginning in 84, cause I got out of the army in December 83. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was a ruffian. I mean, I was, I was something to deal with. I had just come, like I said, I was January 84, but in October of 83, well, November of 83, I'd just come out of combat and be in, uh, Grenada. So I was a piece of work. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> but Steve and I, you know, we sparred and, and did kata and I love kata. Kata is my thing, but. That was my start into Matsubashi Shonru. Because saying Shonru, of course, is like saying Chevy. What model are you get or what model have you got? It's a good point. But um Yeah, so Mat- you, you, Matsubayashi Shonru, that's what I that's what you taught me. Yes. Yeah. So there was a little that on in there, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so when when you and Steve were training, I remember Steve. I remember, I remember him coming and teaching us stuff, uh, being like a guest sensei, if that's the right word. So I, I remember, and I remember uh, also. I think it was his wife that made Sean a pair of Hakama. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. That was awesome. Okay. So anyway, like you're you're here training. You're just fresh out of combat. You meet Steve. What school was it? That was the American Shonru Karate Academy. Got it. Got it. So, how often were you training then? Uh, Monday, Wednesday. No, 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 no. Take that back. His class was on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Okay. Basically, twice a week with him, but I, uh, they had eighteen katas in in showing room, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I was used to the twenty six katas of Shotokan, but. I lost some of those katas, of course, you know, over the the time period of the army and all that. But uh, in about six weeks, I'd I'd learned probably nine of their katas, and mm-hmm. it impressed them. So mm-hmm. I stood out a little bit. And they, each of the instructors there, they were magnificent. Paul Keller, and Pat Campbell, those guys they they leaned on me hard mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because I was successful very fast, but. If you think about it, Sean Rukata's, um, especially like the Pinons, they're not that different from Shotokan because in Shotokan, they're called Heian, but they're kind of the same kata. They're the same kind of moves, just different, little different variations of the stance. Sure. Shotokan has a back stance. We have a cat stance, that kind of thing. Yeah. Can Can you talk about what a kata is, for, especially for the people that don't know? Um, a summarization of it would be that their offensive and defensive moves, um, which one can practice alone, but to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing these over t- 
time you learn that, you know, competition is a good place to get tested because you're against other systems. They're looking for your poise, your balance, um, your focus. Um, do you look like you're in a fight? Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those factors. There, There's multiple other factors, but the common or average person might not understand those. Yeah. Uh, for what we're looking for. Um, I've seen, I've seen titles that were astronomical. I mean, just unbelievable, but the tournament thing, you have to be very careful with. Cause if you're a traditional stylist, you can to, to, to win or to match the people of that tournament, the other competitors, mm-hmm. uh, you'll I don't, bastardize your katas. You'll bastardize your form just to to win. Right. And that's not something I was willing to do. Yep. But over, I don't know, 30 years of, of tournaments and all that, uh, I proved that you could use traditional karate and win a open tournament. Right. I did well. Um, and I was lucky to have fantastic instructors for the tournament side and for the traditional side. Mm-hmm. And say Barth didn't let me vary from, from tradition. And Master Hickson showed me everything in these books. Master Mike Hickson, he was my primary, I should say, Hickson Jr. Because his dad was like, I don't know, legendary for starting showing room in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I trained under both of them, but Mike Hickson Jr. was was uh, my tournament coach, and oh, got it. and and traditional because he was unbelievable at traditional. Mm-hmm. He always reminded me, "Don't let those tournaments turn you. You stay Matsubashi." Yeah, because it's. You can walk in any Matsubashi dojo in the United States that I know of, if they're traditional and, and for real. Pinankata there looks like the same like a Pinankata in the, in the one in the next state. Yeah, right. They all teach the same. They all have the same mentality. They're unwilling to bend, and that's right. awesome. That's good. Yeah, well, I, I remember, obviously, like all of the katas that you taught us. I, that was I, definitely one of my favorite parts. And like in initial, initially learning kata, it was very much like just trying to memorize the moves and the sequence. But then it becomes something more than that. Then it becomes something where you're learning how to focus your mind. You're learning how to, I don't know, kind of lose yourself in where you are in the in the and be in the present moment. And then those movements just become a second nature, like breathing. Absolutely, and that, that's where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. If you have to. If if you should be unfortunate enough to have to use it to protect yourself or others, um, if you train the correct way, and, and that's repetition, those moves no longer are moves or a sequence of moves; they're mere reaction. Right. They're they're spontaneous. They're not something that you think about. Because in the real fight, if you have to if you have to think about something. Uh, as to, to defend it or, or 
whatever the case, if you have to think, you lose. Yeah, it's over. That, that split second of timing that they're gonna, you're going to lose. Yep, yep. So before you went off, like when you were first learning it, 10 years old and whatever, you were doing Shotokan that whole time? Yeah. I don't think I ever even realized that. And then when you came back, that's when you got started in Shornru. And to your point, the differences between the katas, well, you taught us a lot of Shotokan stuff. That kind of got dabbled in, in, in there. So, and I actually really liked the forms, the Shotokan forms, but I obviously loved Shornru. So like you're 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 switching over in your back and you're trying to learn the the shotokan or excuse me the shorenru system you talked about kind of maybe like that bleed effect where oh no i just did the move the shotokan move not the shorenru move so and you said that you learned six or eight of the katas in six you said eight katas i think in six weeks yeah and that's because they're so similar yeah i I, you know i would open i have open hands on uh Heon Nidon, where in Pinon Nidon, the hands are closed, that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. The movement, the movements are, are very similar, and yeah. the direction, the number of movements are, are the same. They're just variations in, in hand placement or how deep into Zinko Zidachi, a long forward stance you are. Mm-hmm. Um, if you... If you're traditional Shotokan, it was very easy to go from a forward stance like Zenko Sadachi to a back stance right. by merely leaning back to the to the rear foot and pointing the the, the rear foot kind of outward yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and bending that knee. So it was very easy to me. It just flowed together. I just had to tighten up and get my feet closer together which was very appealing to me because um, not bashing any system, none whatsoever, especially Shotokan. Um, but it got my feet under me more so like a boxer. Mm-hmm. And I was able to move a lot faster because coming out of those deep stances in a combat situation is is a time delay and next to impossible sometimes. Yeah. You can do it, obviously, but... Um, can be I a significant delay. Significant. And the only reason I was able to move quicker than the average bear was because in the 82nd, because that's where I was in the Army, it was the 82nd Airborne. You didn't walk anywhere. Mm-hmm. In those days, we ran. Right. If you came off out of your barracks into the compound, until you left the compound, you were running yeah. double time. So the leg strength is what helped me a lot because – as you know, from back in those days, I was an aerial fighter. Mm-hmm. I, I would likely jump up in the air to yep. attack. Yep. Uh, or flip upside down, whatever the case may be. Yeah. <laughs> but I was, <laughs> that is opposite of Shotokan and Shoran Roots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they're not aerial fighters. But so, so let's talk about the fact, I mean, like you've, like karate is just like in your blood. It's part of your nature. So can you talk a bit about the development for you over the time, over time and how karate has benefited you real world scenarios, whatever you want to share there, the benefits of karate. It, I, I've got to say that the, <clears throat> the learning of avocados and the, the precision of everything that you do when you're 
in martial arts because when you when you're doing I can only speak of my styles, but Shotokan is very military. Uh, your hand is, you, your block is here because that's where it belongs. Um, Shonra is more relaxed in that sense. They're not so um, strict on the stance as long as the end result is impact with the opponent or blocking the opponent. Yep. Where Shotokan is more military. Uh, more military-like, and that's what fit me because of the army, obviously. But sure, um, Shonru helped me a, a great deal. Not only in closing up my stances. I know, I know what you're thinking because you were there. You knew how low and deep I was. Yeah, it was it, low stances for John. Like it was, it was hard for young young bucks such as ourselves to to match. But that's what we strive for is those low back stances, those low front stances that you taught. But I think the the biggest significance to to you're you're not always just uh, learning to read the other fighter. Mm. You learn to read people. You learn to respect life. You learn to res- respect other people. Because everything that we did began and ended with respect. Right. If, and if you didn't have that, well, I think you saw maybe once or twice, if I had a couple that were of guys in those classes that were really disrespectful. One said, well, you know, my dad pays you, so you will do what I need you to do. And you're a white belt. Have a nice day. Yeah, here's the door. I kicked him out. <laughs> 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 I was that dark haired kid. You remember him? He was he was a little bigger than you too. He was almost <laughs> a little bigger than me. But yeah. er, everybody was bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm vertically challenged. Yeah, I'm that's good. that was the phrase, vertically challenged. <laughs> <laughs> but I I think that's where what made me aerial. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't tall enough to hit him. Yeah, I had to jump. <laughs> oh my but, gosh, uh, that's so true. The focus and the the drive, you know, um, and the constant competition. You don't have to go to a tournament ever to have the competition. Like I told you guys, when you're standing on the line and you're trying to learn and you want to be fast and you want to be strong, there's 20 of you to learn from. Mm -hmm. And there's 20 of you out there competing at all times. You look at the guy next next to you on your left and he's, he's faster. Well, you strive to be faster than him. When I count and you punch, be faster than him. Yep. And when you when you achieve that, you see the guy to your right that's the size of your brother, you know, <laughs> he's a big boy. Yeah. Out. And he's, he's very strong. So you had to punch harder than him and kick harder than him. Yeah. So you're constantly, I guess the bottom line figure to that would be that you're you're constantly attempting to better yourself. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, today's karate is is uh, self perfection mm. for the tournament or for the belt or for the title. Mm-hmm. Where what karate is really about, you know, uh, is not the self perfection, but the self protection. Yeah. So your stances won't be quite as crisp, but you're going to hurt this guy that's trying to hurt you. Yeah. You know? Yep. So I, I think those are 
there's there's many things I could go on for hours about what what karate can give you. Yeah. But I think that the bottom focus is just that. It's the focus and determination built in with respect. You can be tough and a bad guy, a, a badass in the, in the ring, but you're not rude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. respect other people. Uh, tournaments, for instance, uh, I'd have people come up and they'd tell me what a great job I did and that I was awesome at this or that. Um, and my answer was always the same. I try. Yeah. It looked at me kind of funny. I had people come up to me and say, I wish I could, and these were black belts, would come up and say, man, I wish I could do a kata like you just did. And I'm like, well, fine, come over to Hickson's Dojo, I'll teach you. Yeah. And I would show you the kata I just beat you with. Yeah. I was questioned a couple times about that. Why would you show me? I said, because if I make you less than me, karate eventually will be just crap. Yeah. If you beat me after I teach you this kata, if you beat me in a tournament that seems to be your drive, I've done my job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I meant you better than me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the goal is 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 being is is that that kind of like that drive to improve your own standard and you, the drive to improve those around you, that was always very, very evident in the classes that we took. And I, I remember sometimes we were probably a little bit mm-mm not respectful with each other in some of the ways that we competed, but ultimately overall, I think we all had a very healthy competition in the, in the class. And it was like all different sizes. And so we were all like, I remember, I think I was only most of the time that I was trained under you was when I was in my teens. And I don't think I ever broke 130 pounds until college. (laughs) I was five foot, (laughs) five foot eight, but I didn't, whenever I started, I wasn't five foot eight. That that's my height now. So like I went from being, super short, super tiny to finally growing, but I never hit my growth spurt. You mentioned my brother, Sean, he's six foot three at the, at the time when he was training, he was around the 200 pound mark. And then we had guys like your son, John Michael, who was a younger guy who was in the class and shorter. But the fact, the interesting thing is like you square off with somebody like Sean, you're doing your drills and practices. Then you get a really clear understanding of, Oh, this guy is bigger. And that means he's got more reach. And then you're like, okay, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, the need to get inside of the person's reach and then you can work to overwhelm them. So it's almost counterintuitive, but when you're against somebody that's bigger, it, not all the time, I guess, but you need to, you need to be not at their striking distance. You need to be at your, your striking distance. And I can remember squaring off with John Michael. I don't know how old he was, um, but I did the, um, that mistake of underestimating somebody, uh, you know, because he's short. He did. I don't even know what he did. He did some move. He was eight. He did some move. I didn't even see it to this day. I don't even remember what he did, but I went, he made contact somewhere and I was, I was on the ground. I don't know how I got to the ground, but he knocked me flat on my butt and I don't know what he did and how I got there. And I remember being shocked and you looked at me and you said something to the effect of like, you weren't expecting that or you underestimated. Don't do that again. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) He, if I recall, um, he was working and the only reason I don't recall the, the incident, but I recall what he was working on at the time. And that was how to slam into you with a Zinku Sadachi, the forward stance. Mm. Slam into you shin to shin, and he would push your knee to the side so when he hit you, you went down. 
It was the objective was to get you down. <laughs> he succeeded. You know, <laughs> the, the objective wasn't really to hit you, but the objective was to get you down so that you could, you know, do the the self defense thing, which is run. <laughs> yeah. But um, he was quick, and he was he was strong. He's he's thirty three now, and two hundred and plenty, and five eleven. Jeez. And still today, you know, he's a Sondon. He's <laughs> till today when we train at the house, I mean, he's like running into a wall. <laughs> I no doubt. <laughs> in, that, in that same time period, that's the, the point of karate. You, you, you're never always number one top of the game. Right. I had this skinny little sick kid that just came back to the dojo um, that surprised me. And to surprise me was was a pee. <laughs> we, were, we were sparring or something and uh, this little dude shot in and he shot low and hit me straight in the solar plexus with his little bony knuckles and I thought you know what <laughs> that wasn't something I let through Yeah, it, it was there and that told me those lights came on mm. that happened to have been you really but, yeah, a scrawny little thick kid came back. Sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, it was you. <laughs> so that was after I was out for, what, eight months being all sick and I came back? Yeah, it was about probably three months back. So your recovery was really fast. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that, that karate does. I mean, you you learn to ignore pain and, and discomfort. Uh, you're you're kind of like a tiny combatant. Yeah. Uh, the things that you learn and, and and will overlook as far as pain or discomfort in those packs, uh, like we used to train outside, it would be cold or it would be windy or wet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember one time there was snow on the ground. We were over at the uh, the river and mm-hmm. we were talking about speed techniques with, with your hands, how to get in. And two or three of the group wasn't getting it. I think you were there, and Sean, and, uh, several of you were there. And I said, look, you, you've got to slice the air like you would water. And it may have been the age of the students at the time. Mm-hmm. They weren't getting it. So that's when we went over there to the edge of the river, and I reached in, and I snatched the fish out mm-hmm. with my hand. And the little look on your face was priceless. You're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and instead of saying that was awesome, you said, I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> that told me I was getting somewhere because you wanted to do it. You didn't just want to say, oh, he's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. No, I wanted to, I, because at that point I was like, I can, I can get there. If I train hard enough, if I work hard enough, I can get there. I don't remember if you actually got one or not, but I know that you got really close. Because <laughs> it came up out of the water. Yeah, no, I but never, I never caught one. Never did. I think you got it with your fingers or something because your tail came out of the water, and I'm like, "That's it. Did cut the water. You're cutting the air." <laughs> yeah. And then we went over there and beat the crap out of each other in that old castle area. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was fun. That was but, fun. Learning to ignore all the elements and and pain and discomfort and things like that. All those things. Usually, an attacker will hit you when when you're 
coming out of the grocery store, you got an arm full of bags and a uh, two-year-old by your side and you got your car keys and it's raining, it's miserable. That's when, when somebody will see you as vulnerable. Right. And, and make their attack as to whether they're trying to rob you or just take your food or take your car. But you're accustomed to ignoring all those, the, the elements that he's experiencing. Yeah. So he's actually at the, at the loss. He has the element of surprise, but you have the element that nothing around you is going to affect you but him. Yeah, yeah. If he's, if he's not careful and you're not careful, you'll end him. Yep. You know, yeah. Which is another world to deal with. Yeah, that's that's one of the one of the really awesome things about the training that was really good. And I remember at the height of it, I would go three times a week, and we had I think two classes on the evening. So I'd go to the like the you had like the more advanced class that you started doing, but then you had like the more beginner class. Well, when I decided that I wanted to teach, that's when you had me make sure that I was coming to even the beginner class and you let me start taking reps at teaching for 15 minutes and doing like a warm up or whatever. But I can remember when we were training really hard, I think it was maybe in the winter time and we were in that smaller room, you remember, and it did not have the uh, climate control that the rest of the building had. And when it was cold, it would get cold in that room. When it was hot, it would get really hot in that room. And I remember we fogged up the whole, all of the mirrors on the wall. You remember? Yes, we did. Like regularly. Yeah. yeah. That that seemed to be our 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 goal was to make it so the outside couldn't see in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we did, and we yeah. sweat all over that carpet. I'll, I'll bet you that I'll bet you because whenever we moved out of that location, I think we went back into the bigger room because we you ended up having too many students at one point. We couldn't all fit in that room. Couldn't fit. We got to a point where we were kind of tight in the big room. Yes, but. You know, she she was decent with us. She would let us do what we needed to do. Um, you know that I will make a point about that because that's something that I probably w- should have brought up at the beginning. One thing that was really awesome about our our class when we would train is the fact that that wasn't your your full time job. That was your no. that was your side gig. You would work like a full time job. You had a family that you were taking care of, and then on on what you could have done on well you could have done anything <laughs> on those days that you were training us and teaching us you could have been doing anything but instead like you you taught it and so it was like a passion that was what one of the things i think that made you a really good teacher is that you never tried to make it your full-time thing so like it was really about the art it was about the passion behind it and it was always about making us better than you you were always driving us to try to be better than you were um and i think that that's why it was such a good, what made you such a good teacher is that you never had to compromise because it was never your full-time job. True that. Um, and that, that's a big, that's a big thing, especially in today's times. Mm-hmm. Um, if you fall back on Okinawan history, I mean, a karate teacher, that that's what he does. And that's all he does. He'll starve to death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They just, you know, they bring cans of food or whatever they they could to offerings, I guess, for the for the training. But uh, I I always took it that I worked so I could afford to train. Yeah, because the training was my passion, not not a job. I mean, I was a shipping logistics manager for CompuServe or 
or was a manager, uh, shipping manager for Libyl and Sport Auto Glass, that kind of thing. But it always afforded me the ability to pay for whatever training I needed or pay for an area uh, mm-hmm. to train. Um, and when I was when I I had times where I didn't have those areas, I was trained outdoors. Mm-hmm. And in the north, that can be quite breezy. Yes, very. That's <laughs> raining. <laughs> But uh, it's 19 degrees. That's always fun. But what <laughs> those things taught you was focus. Yeah. You know, because in those times of cold and stuff, I don't recall ever sparring. Sparring was low on the category for even Hickson's dojo. We we didn't spar all that often, even though most everybody in Hickson's dojo were sparring champions, literally mm-hmm. champions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't spar that much. It was all kata, <laughs> kata and basics. I mean, basics does repetitions of thousands, thousands of punches, kicks, yep. uh, whatever they were. Uh, which brings me something to mind too. When we were in the middle of all that, it was you that went to a competition for kicking, wasn't it? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Kicked about a thousand times with one leg. <laughs> yeah, I kicked. I that's when Hickson stopped me. Because <laughs> I got to I got to a thousand kicks and nobody else was kicking. Everybody else was done. Now that that I stopped. He stopped me. That was amazing. And then and then they had us take a break. And then they had to switch to the left leg. And I only got like two hundred some out because my hips started to just I don't know lock up. Yeah. <laughs> fall off money <laughs> yep <laughs> but again drive determination i'm gonna win this i don't care who's <laughs> there were some big boys in there yes that should have been able to out kick you but they couldn't because they had the muscle but mm. you had the drive and determination yeah that's, and that's true that's the lesson of karate is you know to succeed for you yep. you don't have to for anybody else you do you know your goal is to be a better person tomorrow than you were today yep right yeah that that kicking thing i i can remember and like that's because of your teaching i can remember being there and and just looking ahead and with every kick especially once it started to get harder i i just i just blocked it (laughs) yeah blocked it you just blocked it yeah and that's that's that comes from like good training, which is what I got from your school, which is I mean, that's a life that's a life long thing that's stuck with me, obviously, is that I'm gonna keep going, I'm gonna keep pushing. There's something there's a term came up on uh you know, when I get into these talks about like physicality and everything and the mental stuff behind it. There was one of the podcasts I did was with uh law enforcement officer season two, Jake. And he was t- he he mentioned a comment and I caught it, but you'll relate to this. He said he talked about a ceiling that there's a ceiling, and over time since his youth, that ceiling has gotten lower. So like the ceiling that you hit physically is getting lower, right. and you have to you have to push against it. And if you stop pushing against it, it it that ceiling drops. So the way I kind of think about it is a wall. So I go out to run or I go out to do a physical thing. There's a wall that I'm going to run into. And you have to have the mental acuity to push on it. Otherwise, it stops you and you, you pick comfort. How do, how do you kind of relate to that, those concepts? The same way as he is. Uh, I mean, 
he he definitely was on the money about law enforcement because um, uh, regardless how people see you as a police officer, um, they'll often they'll often say we don't we don't need you or um, you don't have a purpose other than to harass people. Well, that's been stated to me too because I'm a cop. Mm-hmm. And I said, so if you don't need us, then can I give out your phone number? And we, this guy was an attorney. He said, uh, for law? I said, no, they need to call you at 2 o'clock in the morning when somebody's mom and their grandbabies smeared all over the freeway out here. Somebody's got to go scrape them up. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And he had a very stunned look in his face. I said, you're considering the 10% of what our job is all about, which is arrest. I said, it's not the 90%, it's the 10% right. of what you pay. But if you, you know, if, if people followed three kindergarten rules, 90% of my job would go away. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was, <laughs> he asked me, well, what would that be? And I said, you can't take that. It's not yours. If you can't say something nice, don't say it. And there's no hitting or biting. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me kind of dumbfounded. Now, this guy's got an education as far as surpassed the mind. He's an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I said, yeah, I would take part of your job, too. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I pull over the drunk, but then he bites somebody. So, you know, you're defending him. <laughs> Right. That's because he sold the car he was driving when I pulled him over drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and he's definitely not going to say anything nice to me. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, the, the, that feeling and those walls, they're all the same. They mm-hmm. start out with baby steps. Because I was thinking about what you were just saying about the, the kicking and when it began to hurt and how you ignored it. Mm-hmm. You know where that, that might have come from? No. A particular time in class. When I told everybody to get, in a, you know, I asked them about taking a break, which was, you know, the push-up position, front-leaning yep. rest. Yeah. I had everybody get in a push-up position, but I told them to get on your fingertips. And when you get tired, you can break it down to your fist. When you get tired from that, you can break it down to your palms. You're not doing push-ups. You're just standing there. Mm-hmm. And then you broke it down to your elbows, and you're at that point, you're at a plank. Right. And when you're fine, when your body finally gives out, you're done. Mm-hmm. How hard is this exercise? You're going to stand there in the push-up position. You're not doing any exercise. You're just standing there. Right. The funny part was, was the first time I pulled that in the, in the dojo, mm-hmm. it lasted about two minutes. Mm-hmm. Literally, literally 120 seconds. Yeah. And about everybody was on the floor. But yeah. If you notice. In those situations, nobody will fall out because I've already primed you. Don't be the first to fall out. Don't be the first to fall out. I harp on that. I would harp on that because after the first one goes down, mm-hmm. 10 of them will go down. Right. Those are average minds. Like you said, everything that we do in there is very mental. The average person, um, without training for years, is going to have that state of mind. Well, he fell, 
So I, I won't look bad. Mm-hmm. That's their ego. Sure. What you're trying to build is your, your, yourself. Right. Not, not your ego. You're trying to build your own strength. It matters not if somebody thinks you're awesome. You, you're not trying for being awesome. You're trying to be a better you. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's where I think the real lessons are. Yeah. Um, and if you notice people like Mario Higgiona, who I think is still kicking out there, that guy's got to be in his 80s. I would not want him to hit me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but bottom line is, is, you know, like the Okinawan people, I mean, they live to be very old. Yeah. They all, you know, the ones that are like that or that I, that we are going to come in contact with, they're old masters. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we used to, when, when I was at, at, was your instructor, we used to talk about the old guys. Right. You know, we'd like to be like the old guys. Well, now I find myself in the position I am the old guy. <laughs> I don't know when the hell that happened, but I'm one of the old guys now. Yeah. You know, but I think the greatest, one, one of the great factors of, of martial arts is, is no different than being a Marine or a paratrooper. Once you've been in those positions as a Marine or a paratrooper, and there's a lot of folks out there going to relate to that. Right. Those guys are your brothers now right. for brothers and sisters now forever. Right. Um, there's things that you will do with them that you would not do with the average person. You know, one of the guys, I, any of the guys I was in the army with, I'd walk up, grab them and hug them. Yep. What, you find the same thing in a dojo. Absolutely. You, you experience in a different way. You experience pain together. Uh, you experience failure together. Yep. You experience winning together. So you become so tight. But Sean Rue itself seems to be um, different than a lot of systems mm. um, in the sense that I, I often converse with a lady that lives in California. Mm-hmm. I've never met her. She trained under Nagamini. Nagamini. She was one of his direct students. Wow. But she's incredibly humble and in and when you're when you're talking with her, she too is still learning. So am I. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she's uh higher rank than I am, but rank has really nothing to do with it. It's knowledge mm. and, and training and experience. But my whole point of te- saying all that, she she treats me because we, we mostly talk about katas and, and techniques and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, how to, what a hip twitch is. A twitch is um, when you're throwing your hip into a technique, regardless how you're standing, and that's where Shonri is different than Shotokan. There's not a military way to stand. Mm. In it doesn't matter how you're standing or your posture or anything, really. If you execute a correct block, it will stop with hitting. Yeah. That's your, your goal. Yeah. Uh, I think that the reasoning for, for saying all that stuff, there's, there's not just her. There's many of these Shonru stylists that are all over the world. You know, one's in Scotland or some 
something like that. Ian, I talked to him now and then. But we're one. We're family. Right. They talk to me like like I'm their neighbor. Yeah. And I had this, I'm the same with them. But I think that's a unique thing about Matsubashi and Sean Roos because they're all like that. Interesting. Um, they could be a seventh. No, I'm a seventh, but they could be a seventh degree black belt, and a guy ask him about something that's a second degree black belt. And that's why I said the belts don't mean anything because mm-hmm. I give him his answer, and mm-hmm. I'm like, "Well, what are you doing?" And then I'll ask him, "Yeah, well, how do you do that?" <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a constant learning game. It's not about my ego or my uh, belt level. Right. Because <clears throat> like I said, in showing room or in Shotokan, that's where a lot of fighters would do the same thing you did back in the day was underestimate their opponent. Mm-hmm. Like I said, they had, they had uh, multiple belts, 10 of them in fact, under black mm-hmm. that were all Q ranks. They were under black belt ranks. And I was a white belt. There was nothing on my belt, but no, I got a little green stripe once. Got um, <laughs> but before I made green belt, they would walk in the ring with me and they would look down. First thing they did was look at my belt. Mm-hmm. It was white. Mm-hmm. This was yellow, orange, purple, chartreuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, I never looked at their belt because it didn't mean anything to me. Yeah. But they assumed I was in that first four months. Mm-hmm. When in fact I was closer to 16, 18 months. Wow. And they found out very quickly that I was not a second month karate fighter. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then, you know, Yamashita and those guys, Jerry Slater, they, they were accused of cheating. And it was Jerry, Jerry Slater got accused of putting a white belt on. Um, a higher advanced below green belt person or mm-hmm. the, or that I was a green belt because mm-hmm. of my, my speed, the accuracy and all that. And you know how he solved it as he went over and he said, just a second. Cause they, they were accusing him of cheating because I was better than what they expected because those black belts underestimated me too. Mm-hmm. They saw a white belt. Jerry Slater went over and he came back in a moment and he had the tournament flyer. And he said, what does this say? And the guy said, well, you, you, you're, you're obviously putting a white belt on this guy when he's higher than a white belt. He might not be a green, but he's a white belt. He said, yeah, like your flyer. White, green, brown, black. You know, if you want me to, I can use a, a crayon or something and make his belt up yellow or gold or whatever you want. Pick the color. <laughs> he said, but you see those belts right there, the white ones, the blue ones, the this one, the that one? He said, yeah. He says, they fit in the white belt division. Mm-hmm. They're white belts. Right. And then they started to understand. They said, well, how many belts in your, do you have? And he said, four. White, green, brown, black. <laughs> and they looked at him stunned. And one of them said, man, you're a fool. And he said, why? He said, well, each one of those ranks, that's a test. And we charge for that. Oh, that's right. Yep. And he said, really? Well, I guess you're ripping them off. <laughs> <laughs> and some of those students turned and looked at him 
and they decided this was not the place to have the conversation in front of all these students. <laughs> <laughs> we got a couple students out of that one because they're like, you don't charge for all these tests? Right. Because, no, you're not a green belt yet. <laughs> and they're like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy's argument essentially had to do with ego. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of his students came to him and said, that guy ain't no white belt. Well, in fact, I was. I was a white belt for 18 months. Yeah. And then I made green. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it, it was ego and things that they learned. Those things aren't important. Those belts aren't important. The, the number of tests you take, mm-hmm. they're not important. Right. What can you do? And better yet, how have you improved yourself? Right. What have you done? that makes you better today than you were yesterday. Yep. And if they say, I don't know, well then well, I'll tell you, you're not training hard enough. <laughs> right. You know, if you ran one mile today, well, well, well tomorrow you need to run one mile and one tenth. Mm-hmm. And you keep that up and eventually you get old like me and you can't run 10 miles anymore. It's <laughs> <laughs> fair. So I, I use a patrol car, I chase you down. <laughs> then I'll jump out and run. Short tired. Short sprint. Short sprint. Short sprint. Uh, that, that honestly, yeah. like, John, that reminds me of back, it would have been after I came back from being sick, but I remember that the concept that you're describing, like, got through my thick skull. I don't remember the exact moment, but I remember, because, you know, obviously for all of us in, in the beginning, we all felt super awesome when we skipped a belt. Is that's that's one thing that happened is like you tested us and we uh, there was a group of us that all skipped like I think it was when we did, when we took a test all of us skipped a belt for for a two so for two of our tests and like that there you get you, that built up our ego and that's obviously not the goal but then as we kept going and you know people kept advancing in different belts the goal was the goal in our minds I think at least in part was trying to outdo each other. It gives, it gives you short-range goals. Short-range, that's, that's a good way to put it. That's what I used those belts for, were short-range goals. But it wasn't me that skipped you. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it was Mike Hickson. Really? And, and Steve Barth and those guys. Um, they looked at these guys, they looked at y'all when you would go to a tournament or they, they, they saw you us training or you went over and trained with us and they're like dude you need to move him up a belt (laughs) (laughs) that little sucker's no purple belt anymore (laughs) that was the goal was was that's what the belts i turned them into that for my students i don't know about other instructors can't talk to them sure does you 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 have to have a goal because if you can't see a goal they that's, that's human behavior. If you continue to run every day faster and faster and faster, but you're not getting your way anywhere, you're on a treadmill, mm-hmm. you'll what? <laughs> you'll quit. Right. You have to have something that is payment in the beginning. Because when you think about it, in the beginning, is only a couple of years. Yep. Three years, maybe a little more before you make a black belt. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have short-range goals, because as you found out, those short-range goals, the tests that came every four months or every six months, whatever, whenever the class was ready, we would test. 
those went away when you hit black because it, it's going to be two years before you go right. for the next record. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's true. But that that's that's one thing I think that... The road gets longer. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's one thing that like changed in my mind whenever I came back from being sick. I don't remember if I was a brown belt before then or I don't really remember the timing, but I remember somewhere in my brown belt phase, I it got through my mind to stop worrying about what was around my waist. You said something along the lines of be the belt that you want to be or something like that. You phrased it some way like that, be the belt that you want to be. And that's when I just started thinking of myself as a black belt. It didn't, it, I didn't have one yet, but I started thinking of myself and trying to be whatever that ach- achievement is, whatever a black belt is that that's what I'm going to start doing. And then when it finally came time for me to be a black belt, it it just was natural. And at that point, I think I stopped kind of caring. That came actually that statement, because I know that statement. I've said it many times. I, I, that was something I learned. Mm. I learned Mike Stone, world karate champion. We were doing a seminar and he was there and he was the seminar, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, he preached that he was a, a black belt in like, unheard of time a year to Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, he went from white to black. He didn't have any other belt. Jeez. Um, yeah. Uh, if you ever Google Mike stone, you know, karate champion back in the day. And that's back when we didn't wear, cause I, I was, my karate started then too. We didn't have the head gear, the chest pads and the hand pads and foot pads and shin guards. We didn't have all that. You wore a mouthpiece and a cup, and if you were lucky, you wore those little white mitts that went over your knuckles to protect your knuckles from the, you know, from the opponent. Yep. That's all we wore. Well, that's when he became a champion. But one of the main things he said is, when are you going to be a black belt? And he's looking at a class that ranged everything from white belt through black. I mean, through masters were standing there. Mm-hmm. He said, when are you going to be a black belt? When are you going to be a better master? And he said, that's where your thought pattern is different than mine. And that's where I got those statements like, you know, when I went to tournaments and people would say, oh, you did a good job. I didn't think of it as a job. I paid $45 to compete and I was taking that trophy home. Yeah. Because that's what it's for. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All the opponents were just in the way, (laughs) you know. Yeah. But that was my mindset. Mindset was not ego. That mindset was given to me by him. When he said, when are you going to be a black belt? And he pointed down to this guy that was probably 15 years old. He was a white belt. Mm-hmm. It was probably mm-hmm. his third month in the, in the school. And he said, well, Sensei said, he said, no, see, that's where you got a problem. Sensei said, doesn't matter what somebody says. You be as good as you can be right now. So mm-hmm. when he started karate as a white belt, he said, I'm a black belt. And he was very quickly because wow. he, his mind said, I don't have to go through these belts. I don't have to do this because you say so. Right. I can be better than that, faster than that. Yep. And that's what he did. So that's where that came from. When are you going to be a black belt? No, you train like a black belt today. Mm-hmm. And the guy mm-hmm. said, I've only been here three months. He said, so? <laughs> <laughs> he said, you see that eight-year-old black belt over there? He said, yeah. He said, you think you can beat him? He goes, well, he's eight. And he said, 
you, you getting it yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the lights are on. <laughs> it doesn't matter their belt. It doesn't matter, you know, what they say. Yeah. You do what you can do. Yep. And what you can do can be far higher and and far tougher on yourself than they can ever be. Yeah. And that's, that's what he created by saying that. When he was a white belt, he was a black belt. Yep. So he trained like a black belt. You don't stop because your class is over with. Your your white belt class is done. The black belts are coming in to train. Well, good. Go out in the alley. It's cold. It's wet. But okay. <laughs> train as long as they do. Train as hard as they do. Right. Do what they do. Because he would hang out and watch those black belts and watch their techniques. Mm-hmm. And he would imitate those until he learned them. Yep. And he said, wow, you're catching on quick. He didn't catch on quick. <laughs> he stood back there and watched them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how you learn. That's how, That's you, how learn. you learn. Watching and discussion. Yeah. Discussions help you learn a lot. That's yeah. why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So we're we're at our hour mark here, John. So I'm gonna make a couple closing comments that I'm gonna let you kind of close it out and say to the people whatever you'd like to say in closing. But I, I mean I just this has been a great conversation for me because it just takes me right back to all those awesome times in in the class and training and all the years, the sweat. The blood, it was just so much fun, so much, so much fun. And then the, the hard times that were really hard, you, you, I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't trade those, those hours, those times for anything. So I just want to say officially, thank you, thank you to you for teaching us, even though you didn't have to, and it wasn't your full-time job and taking the time out of your schedule to come and train us and teach us to be better and to help us have our mental focus and to think through things and to think more deeply through things. Uh, it's made me definitely who I am today, all of those classes and all that stuff. So thank you for everything. It was, it was more than my pleasure. And I learned as, like I told you, when you wanted to be a teacher, you'll learn more teaching than you will doing. Yep. Um, there's, there's many, there's many levels to that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. statement which would take another hour but uh case being it's been my my honor and pleasure but uh to, to the people listening i i know that we we pounded shotokan and pounded on matsubashi shonru mm-hmm. um there's no best style right there's the best you that's in any style it makes no matter your style how good you want to be for yourself you know Um, but I do think that martial arts is an important thing, especially in today's society, um, because it teaches things that not even our schools teach anymore. Regular elementary schools and on up is honor and respect and be truthful. You can be as truthful as you want, but we all tell little white lies, but you can't tell white lies to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what martial arts will teach you. Whether it's kung fu, karate, I don't care what you take, but take something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a better you out in there. And once you start, you'll find you. Mm-hmm. And the betterment to you uh, is life. Don't don't take karate as a or martial arts as a class. Mm-hmm. It's a beginning to a new life. I've done this, you know, I started at 10 
but I've done this all my life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I cannot remember what it's like to not know a method to do something. Mm-hmm. Because the things that were taught to me in those days, um, and, and still, there's always one more thing you can do. No matter how bad the situation, you can be upside down in the car, the daggone thing is burning, you're beside the road, nobody's driving down that road, there's always one more thing you can do. Mm. Cut the seatbelt. You know? yeah. But martial arts causes you to, to think like that, to where you're always looking for the betterment. Yeah. Uh, times get hard, you lose a job, you're, you're on a minor income of some kind supplied by the state. And what are you going to do with your family? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you going to do with your, your kids? Because they want to go to the fair or right now, you know, the state fair is going. You mm-hmm. can't afford that, mm-hmm. but you can train with them. Mm-hmm. You can create something better than a Ferris wheel. Yeah. Um, all that being said, is there, there are extremely pricey schools out there. Yep. Um, and there's, you know, that I've been, I've been contemplating if I can get the right schedule because of my job. I'm daytime, nighttime. I'm eight hours. I'm twelve hours yep. in a heartbeat. Right. Uh, but I've been seriously considering going back and, and opening a school to probably be mostly cops because they're on a jacked up schedule like I am. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cops, firefighters, you know, EMS, but. Bottom line is uh, to train and to teach again because that that closeness, that that uh, camaraderie amongst you, mm-hmm. the and these guys will especially understand it because you know they can see cops and firefighters and EMTs any way they want to. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is these people that perform our func- our job functions are willing to die. Mm-hmm. You know for a perfect stranger of another race, creed, color, because they don't care. You know? Right. They don't care who you are or what you are. You're a human being. We're all from the same race, the human race. Yep. So, you know, these people are willing to, to go that far. How far are you willing to go to help yourself? Right. You know? So I think that it would be a good thing for it would be probably the best thing that anybody can do is to find themselves a, a good school, good, good instructors. They're out there, mm-hmm. um, but train. Yeah, you know, do some form of martial art. Train because it, it gives you things that you and I can't even touch in the next fifty hours. Right. The, the things that you will learn about yourself, about others. Yep. That's good. That would that would be my suggestion for everybody or everything is you know some form of martial arts, the discipline. We definitely need it. The respect, yep. The respect of others. I mean, I've heard eight year olds say things to me that I've not heard an adult say. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! I can imagine. But the bottom line is, is that they, they, they aren't taught that. You know, right. Um, be happy with who you are. Yeah. Just be a better you. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Be a better you. Yeah. That's good. And I'll, 
know I like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I could clearly we can you well we both know that we can t- you and I can talk for for hours. Uh, yeah, hours. So we will just do this another time and do, log another hour. Um, yeah. But hey, man, I can't appreciate. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and agreeing to do this and take time out of your schedule. It was great talking to you today too. All right, everybody. So this has been uh, Lancelot's Roundtable with my uh, my karate instructor. John Bennett, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Hope that you got something out of this podcast. I know I did. And uh, we will see you next time. John, we will talk with you again soon. Yes, sir. All right. See you, everybody. Bye.